Well, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. While you're finding your place, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord, for the sunshine, for the time of fellowship. And Lord, we just thank you that we're able to come together around your word and to study and learn from it. I just pray, Lord, that you would meet with us here today. I pray that you would uh, just work in our hearts and our lives, Lord, and, and use this time, Lord, to uh, draw our hearts near to you, Lord. I just pray that you would work in each person's life. I pray that you just guide and direct me in my thoughts, my words, that things I say would be uh, uh, true, accurate, and helpful, Lord. And we just pray, ask you to be with the ones that are uh, still on their way out today, be with those who uh, aren't able to come due to work schedules and different commitments, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for loving us. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what we've been on for our uh, Bible study is we've been looking at Paul's third missionary journey. And uh, we kind of made a transition into the third one without uh, really making a whole lot of mention of it. But this is his third and final missionary journey, unless you want to count his journey to uh, his journey to Rome, which is not of his own accord, right? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, he has went through confirming the churches throughout Galatia and the western part of Asia there. Uh, he sailed over to, uh, well, actually, yeah, he did. He sailed over to Greece and he went through the, uh, or he's preparing to, he's, let me get my brain in order here. I'm still, I'm still running from a bear or something. I don't know. But anyway, um, He's still on his way to Greece. He hasn't made it there yet. That's where we're going to be at. And so anyway, he has made it back to Ephesus. And uh, whenever he had wrapped up his second missionary journey, he had stopped off kind of last there in Ephesus and left Priscilla and Aquila. They began uh, cultivating the soil, if you will. They began uh, working to prepare for whenever Paul would return. They talked to Apollos, uh, straightened him out on some of the things that he either didn't understand or hadn't been taught and gave him a more clear understanding of the gospel. And uh, they just kind of settled in there. And now Paul has come back to Ephesus and he has been there for about two years time. We found out in chapter 19, verse number 10. And as he is there, he has found a, a group of Jews who had heard John's message and heard that the Messiah was going to come but uh, they never had gotten the full story. They hadn't uh, gotten a full understanding of the gospel, and so their belief was partial. And whenever Paul came, he uh, expounded the word of God more clearly. He expounded the gospel more clearly, and they believed they were baptized. And as I said, he stayed there uh, preaching. He stayed there discipling and growing the people and seeing people saved there in Ephesus. But in Ephesus... It was a center of all sorts of sin and vice. It was uh, where the, the great temple of Diana was. They were pagans. They were idolatrous. And that's what all of their society kind of centered around, was vice and idolatry and sin and all these different things. And this is where Paul was ministering to. He wasn't coming to a moral people. He wasn't coming to a religious people, I guess religious in a pagan sense. But he was coming to a place that where society was completely depraved and falling apart, and he was ministering there, and there was great things that were happening. Where we finished up last week 
was that in verse 11 it says that God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul. And if, you, if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, I've got underlined in mind that it was special miracles. This isn't the norm. This isn't the usual means of operation. But this is something that God had given uh, specifically for that time and for that place and for a specific purpose. And Paul was able to use these special miracles to confirm him as a messenger and to confirm his message. That was the reason for all the miracles throughout the New Testament, confirm the messenger, confirm the message, okay? And so uh, during that time, it was necessary. And I believe that uh, as it talks about him uh, giving handkerchiefs and aprons to people that went and uh, was using those to uh, get rid of diseases and sicknesses and stuff, it wasn't some kind of good luck charm. It wasn't some sort of superstition, but it was almost a way of uh, Paul deputizing other people, mm-hmm. basically saying, okay, this is from, from Paul, from God, to validate his message and his messengers, yeah. okay? And so those things were going on, but the, the religious people of that day, not the Christians, but the religious people of that day saw these things going on and became interested in them. And they wanted to try to profit off of it. They wanted to try to use Christianity in the name of Christ for their benefit. And we talked about the seven sons of Sceva that came and attempted to cast out demons by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the demon said, uh, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man jumped on them and beat them and left them wounded and naked. And they had to flee away. Okay, and so anyway, um, this is instructive to us because <clears throat> made my thoughts straight here. Y'all pray for me. <laughs> anyway, this is instructive for us today because uh, it shows us uh, what man does with miracles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man has a craving, he has a desire, but it is a carnal and fleshly desire for them. Uh, God's message has already been confirmed through God's Word, okay? We have His confirmed message today, and as far as confirming messengers, they are confirmed by His Word. So His Word has been confirmed, His messengers are confirmed by His Word. We evaluate uh, those who claim to speak on behalf of God and claim to speak in His name, preachers and, and teachers and whatnot, we evaluate them by God's word. And if they align with God's word, they are of God. If they do not align with God's word, then they are heretics, right? Right. And so that is how we validate today. Anything short of that, we end up falling into the same sins as uh, the sons of Sceva here and trying to profit from Christianity and profit from God. And if you look at those today who still seek after signs and wonders and miracles, they do follow in the pattern of the sons of Sceva. They are trying to profit from the things of the apostles and the things of the church and the things of God and trying to do things that are uh, extraordinary or things that are impressive to draw attention to themselves and not to glorify God. And so that's what was going on there. We need to be careful because, as I said, those who focus on signs and wonders today, unfortunately, God does not still leave them wounded and naked fleeing away. Uh, We talked about this just a little bit last week. But there are times throughout Scripture that God does, God deals with people in a, um, in maybe a, um, 
particularly harsh way at key points, key events within Scripture. We've seen this with Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They said, we have given all. They kept back a part of the price, right? And God smote them. He struck them dead at that very place. There are still plenty of people who are doing the exact same sin as Ananias and Sapphira. God is not dealing with them in the same manner. Right. Right? Right. Or the world population would be a lot smaller. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He would have dealt with a lot of the false religions and all those kind of things. And so that was a way that God dealt harshly with them as an example. He's making an example of them so they would take the things of God seriously. Yeah. And I believe this was the case with the sons of Sceva, that God was de- or was allowing this devil to jump on him, uh, jump on them, to deal harshly with it, so all the people in that area would take the warning and say, okay, we're going to not follow in their footsteps. Okay? And so there are many people just like uh, followed Ananias and Sapphira. There's many people that follow the seven sons of Sceva in trying to uh, mimic and try to uh, reenact or whatever the things of God for their own profit. God doesn't do summary judgments on them like he did them. He allows it to continue. He will deal with it one of these days, right? Okay. And so anyway, the, the church was formed, the foundation was laid, and the body was purified or purged here. And what follows is a growth in number and in spirit. Okay? So if we just kind of would break down chapter 19, uh, at first it was, excuse me, their belief was partial. Then the, the religious guys thought that their belief was profitable. And we're going to get to today that the belief is problematic. Okay, that's where we didn't get to last week. And... Um, but just in the first two points that we looked at last week, that it was partial. Whenever Paul came in, he gave them a more thorough explanation. He shared the gospel with them. He told them the truth of God's word, and he was laying that foundation. People were being saved, right? Mm-hmm. And then whenever the sons of Sceva were dealt with, heresy was being dealt with. There was a purging and a purifying of the doctrine and of the believers, Right? And so whenever the God's word is being preached, whenever sin and sinful men are being separated, the results of that that follows is where we're at today, uh, down in verse number 18. And it says, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 18, it says, And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent to Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. And so we're going to just kind of go through this little passage here and look at the results whenever the church was uh, was rooted, was grounded, and was purified. It says there uh, in verse number 18, they believed, they confessed, they showed their deeds. The people were fruitful. The believers were fruitful. Now, this isn't a normal normal uh, expectation whenever people get saved that we're going to be uh, inspecting them. We're going to be looking for them to show their deeds. 
Some people take that passage as a prescription and say, okay, whenever someone makes a claim that they have been saved, now it's for us to examine them. It's up for them to prove to us that they have been saved. We don't find that anywhere else in Scripture, and we don't find that it was required of them here. But instead, what it is leading us uh, to uh, leading us to see is that whenever these people got saved, that there was fruit, there was uh, evidence, there was proof in their lives, and they were bringing it to the church and to Paul. They were the ones who were initiating this, and they're saying, we have believed, we have been saved, and look at how God has transformed our lives. Look at how he has changed us. Mm-hmm. The ones that were previously pagan, they are coming and saying, look, we have gotten rid of our idols. We don't believe in these things anymore. The ones who were once going to the temple of Diana says, we're not going there anymore. Maybe the temple prostitutes that was once there, they're no longer engaging in that anymore. And they're saying, look, we have been transformed. We have been changed. And there was a fruitfulness in the life of the believers because the church was founded on the word of God and it was separate from these false teachers and from these religious people who were trying to profit from God. And this is, uh, in a way, uh, an encouragement for us to make sure that our emphasis is on the right places, that we are emphasizing the word of God and the power that's in the word of God and also emphasizing the purity that we need to have in our lives and in our church. Mm-hmm. Okay, And that comes, that flows out of the truth of God's Word. And whenever our hearts are right with God, and whenever our beliefs are right with Scripture, then there's going to be evidences that come out of that. It's going to change, it's going to transform people's lives, and the Lord is going to be able to use that to add to His church. And so they were multiplied, they grew in number, And as I said, uh, they were fruitful there in verse number 18. They believed, they confessed, they showed their deeds. Okay? And this even gives us a little bit of an, gives us a little bit of an idea as well as the the process of growth within the Christian life. It all begins with belief. Mm -hmm. It doesn't start with deeds, it starts with belief. They believed, and whenever they believed, they confessed what they believed. Yeah. Okay? And after they confessed, after they made it known, after they vocalized, okay, there's been a change that took place. I didn't believe. Now I do. I believe. They confessed. And then that flowed out in their lives. And this isn't necessarily an immediate thing, but then they showed their deeds. Mm -hmm. They lived it out in their lives. There was evidences in their lives. Now, the next thing that we see in verse number 19, uh, it says, Many of them also, which use curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found out 50,000 pieces of silver. And so this idea of curious arts is witchcraft, Mm -hmm. sorcery. Mm -hmm. And so they had these books and uh, whenever they were converted, whenever they got saved, they said, we can no longer uh, have this kind of stuff. We can no longer follow in these kind of practices. And so we need to get rid of it. Now, books at that time would have been very valuable. Uh, You couldn't just have it printed out. You couldn't just buy it at Eason's. Okay? But someone had to hand copy it out, and it was a large work to to write out these books, and it would have been expensive to buy these books. And something interesting to me on this is that these people, whenever they said, we can no longer follow this lifestyle, we can no longer do these things, they didn't say, okay, I've got a valuable asset here. I'm going to sell it on down the line to the next guy. Instead, they said, this is wicked and it has no place in this world, and they destroyed it. Right. 
And it's not saying that these people were wealthy. It's not saying that they had plenty. More than likely, they had very little. And this was a valuable asset, these books and these things that they had. And in our minds, it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to practice it anymore, but I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll get rid of it. I'll sell it. I'll put it up on Facebook Marketplace, right? <laughs> and so anyway, instead of that, they said, this is wicked. This is against God. And I can't with a, a right heart, a right mind, sell it on down the line. And so they destroyed it. They burn it. Okay. They are making a uh, a separation. They are making a distinction. They are saying, I'm no longer going to be any part of this whatsoever. But it also is an exercise of their faith. And what I mean by that is they're saying, I believe that God can reward me more greatly for uh, this sacrifice that I'm making than what I can profit off of it if I sell it on down the line. Okay, And this is something that we find a principle in God's word that God will reward our obedience much more than what we can profit off our disobedience. Yes. Okay. But in our minds, in our human reasoning, our uh, rationalizing of things, we think, okay, I've got to find some way to... Uh, to support myself. I've got to find some way to support my family. And so God understands. We've all heard that, right? Mm -hmm. God God will understand. I have to do this because, but no, God doesn't understand because ultimately he says, if you seek him first and his righteousness, then he's going to take care of all those things that we're worried about. And so this is what they're understanding. They're saying, okay, I am burning something valuable. I'm getting rid of this. I could make money off of this, but it's more important to me to follow godly principles. It's more important to me that I separate from this thing, that I get rid of this, than it is for me to collect what income I could, what kind of money I could off of this thing. Okay? And now, more than likely in the day that we live in, we don't have... uh, magic books and sorcery and incantations and that kind of stuff whenever we come to the Lord that we have to get rid of. Right. Yeah, you read your prayer beads? Maybe if you have like 24 karat gold ones. Just... I can actually burn books, the Soviet mm-hmm. books, the blasphemous yes. ones, too. all this stuff around there. Mm-hmm. So is this a passage where people get burned? Things? You want to talk about? Yeah, I, I know that was a big thing. Like whenever you get saved, you get rid of like all of the the romance novels and all of the the explicit uh, the CDs and stuff with explicit content content and uh, movies and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, yeah, what they're saying is this isn't right for anyone to consume. This isn't right for uh, you know this is wicked, and so I'm going to get rid of. It. I'm not going to sell it on eBay or anything else. I'm going to just get rid of it. But it's not just about items. It's not just about materials. But it is showing us an evidence of how important it is for us to separate from wicked influences in our lives, for us to make a decision, for us to actively, uh, for us to actively take a stand against things in our life and in our communities and things that are going to be contrary to God and His Word. And so if you look in your life and you find things that is keeping you away from God, that's hindering your growth in your uh, Christian life, your Christian walk, you're better off to get rid of those. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it should be a, uh, 
I don't think it should be something that we have trouble getting rid of. It should be something that we get rid of quickly. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. As they did here. Uh, Jesus taught in one place that if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He's not meaning literally to maim yourself, but he's saying if there's anything that hinders you whatsoever, you're better off to take drastic measures to get it as far away from you as possible mm-hmm. than to allow it to keep having its effect on you. Right. And so that's what they did is they, they uh, were... Uh, separating themselves, they were purifying themselves, they were making themselves more holy by this decision that they were making to get rid of this. And they said, I believe that God is able to take care of me, that he is able to profit me much more through the burning of this book than through the selling of it. All right. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so then verse number 20, Acts 19 and verse 20, it says, so mightily, grew the word of God and prevailed. So God's word was preached. The false prophets, I guess, were pushed away. The people were purging themselves of wicked influences. They were fruitful. They were bearing fruit in their Christian lives. And as a result of these things, the word of God grew mightily and it prevailed there was victory through Christ as a result of these things. These are principles that we can put in place in our lives. These principles of focusing on his word, of separating ourselves from bad teachers and bad influences, right? And as we're doing that, as we're focusing on God, as we are being fruitful in our Christian walk, then God's word is going to go out and it's going to make a difference. It's going to grow mightily. Right. Why is Christianity weak today? Why is church so ineffective, just the church in general, so ineffective today? It's because many times it has been uh, ignorant of God's word. It has been infiltrated by false teachers. Mm-hmm. It has been corrupted by all of these wicked influences and we are refusing to draw a line, we're refusing to separate, we're refusing to make decisions to get rid of stuff, we are unfruitful and we are not seeing God's word go out and grow mightily and have an effect in the world and the society which we live in. And so we need to get back to these basics, and whenever we do that, there is victory through Christ. And so that's verse number 20. Mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Uh, the Lord said that uh, the gates of hell. <laughs> Sorry, my accent started to come out really bad right there. Didn't it? <laughs> anyway, the gates of hell shall not prevail. I was mixing hell and prevail. Hell. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there is a promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church of God. Mm-hmm. But instead, the gates are a defense. We are to be attacking. We are to be the ones that are on the offense, not the defense. We're not supposed to be running. We're not supposed to be holding the fort, okay? Right. But instead, we are to be attacking. We are to be the ones that are going against the things of evil. We're to be confronting uh, Satan and his, and his foes, or his adversaries, our foes. We're to be confronting them, and we are to be prevailing against them. We are to be victorious over them. But that only comes whenever we are walking with God, rooted in his word, and separated from the wicked. That's the only way it works. And so anyway, mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And the last part that I read there in verse 21 and verse 22, 
uh, Paul was proposing to go back through the the areas that he had been in in, in Greece. This would have been uh, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, uh, Corinth, and uh, maybe Athens. I don't know, maybe he was done with Athens. It doesn't seem like there's ever a church that started there. But he purposed to go back through that area. Then he was going to go back to Jerusalem to report. That was going to be the end of his third missionary journey. And then he was going to go back to Rome. And no doubt in Paul's mind, he had intended to go back through the region of Galatia, cross over into uh, Greece, and then from Greece go on further westward toward Rome. That was probably his intention. Now, Paul is going to do all these things. He is going to go to all these places, just not the way that he had intended. Because right. we know that he goes back to or excuse me, goes back to Jerusalem. He is uh, imprisoned. He spends a couple years in Jerusalem in prison. He appeals to Caesar, and finally he makes the voyage over, and he ends up imprisoned in Rome. Right. So he does end up doing all these travels that he's wanting, but at this time he is making preparation. He is sending forth. Uh, Timothy and Erastus to prepare the way as he's going to go forward, but he stays in Asia for just a little bit longer. Okay, and so he's got these plans. He's making uh, preparation. He's doing all these things because he wants to continue ministering. He wants to see growth. The church there at Ephesus seems like it is getting to the place they don't need him anymore. Mm-hmm. And really, as as Paul's going, he's almost. Uh, looking at church planting as parenting, okay? All parents are trying to work themselves out of a job. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And so if we do it right, they grow up, they move out of the nest, and they go off on their own, and they, they create their own nest, right? Right. And so Paul's looking at it, okay, I'm going to come, I'm going to disciple them, I'm going to teach them, I'm going to raise up uh, leaders, I'm going to turn over leaders, and I want to move one out of here. And he did that time after time going through all those regions. And so he says, I'm making plans for my departure. I'm making an exit strategy here. I'm going to send these men on forward so I can go over into Greece. I can check on the churches, see how they're doing, go back, update things in Jerusalem. Then I'm going to go to Rome and I'm going to uh, go to the heart of the Roman Empire with the gospel. And I'm going to see, uh, you know, all roads lead to Rome. So I need to, to plant a church in Rome so that the gospel will go out into all of the world. And so Paul had great aspirations. He wanted to see uh, the Word of God be multiplied and go to everyone. And he did a good job at it, (laughs) right? But anyway, uh, after we get to the end of uh, verse number 22, we kind of shift gears here in verse number 23. And so from verse 23 to the end of the chapter, it uh, kind of focuses on one incident. So... The first half of the chapter is looking at Paul's ministry in Ephesus overall, how he went about it, what all was going on, the decisions that the believers were making, the results of it, the growth there in Ephesus, and all of that came together to bring about this one event, okay? And so in verse number 23, I'll go ahead and I'll read part of this. I won't read the rest of the chapter, but verse 23, it says, and the same time there arose no small stir About that way, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, uh, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of the of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. 
Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be uh, that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered into, in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not venture himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And so we'll stop with that. But in this passage, what we find is that the church had grown to the place that it started to have an effect on society. We find that the church began to transform society. Uh, as he has been here, as Paul's been here for two years, he'd seen people saved, he'd seen lives change, there was fruit, there was power, there was victory, but they hadn't ran campaigns, they hadn't held pro, uh, protests or parades. What they had simply done is preach the gospel and allow the gospel to transform lives. And as lives were transformed, society was transforming. Now, Ephesus wasn't a small city. Ephesus was a huge city. It was a center of commerce. It was where so many uh, trading routes crossed. It was a place that was very large, very populated, but Christianity within two years had grown to the place that it was upending society. That tells us a lot about what was going on there, right? And so within two years' time, Ephesian society was changing, and these men, these craftsmen, tradesmen, were afraid that they were going to go out of business. Because Ephesus had trafficked in uh, idolatry, they had made all of these statues in this way of worshiping <coughs> Diana and all the different idols and things. And this was their business. They made gods. And whenever the Christians came in and whenever people were converting to Christianity, they no longer were buying the gods. And I wonder if whenever it was talking about there in uh, verse number 19, whenever they were bringing their books and destroying them, I'm wondering how many people were bringing their idols and destroying them. I wonder how many people were getting rid of this and melting down all of these pagan idols and, and maybe the burn, burning the wooden ones and different things like that, crushing up the stone ones. They were getting rid of these things. They were no longer buying them. And so these craftsmen said, we are in trouble. It's hurting our, uh, it's hurting our bank accounts. Okay, it's hurting our businesses, and it's saying if this continues, if they continue to convert people, if people continue getting saved, if they continue getting born again, if they continue turning away from idolatry and these things, then people are going to quit buying our statues. 
People are going to quit uh, going to the temple. They're going to quit using the, the services of the temple prostitutes. They're going to uh, quit doing all these. They're going to topple all of our society. The reason I bring this out is that for Christians today, there are, there's this idea of the social gospel. We've all heard of that? Yes. The idea that somehow we are supposed to go out and target the ills of society and try to correct society, that somehow it's the church's responsibility to attack poverty and attack abortion and attack all these different uh, ills of society and we lose track of the gospel. We are no longer looking toward things that are eternal. We're no longer trying to see people saved. We're trying to, uh, trying to transform the world that we're living in, right? And that becomes the focus of so many believers, so many churches, religious organizations today, that they think that somehow by their, their protests, by their campaigns, by their... Uh, their uh, societies that they set up and their charities that they they bring about that somehow that's going to cure the the world's ills but what we find in scripture the most effective way to confront the sin and the wickedness and the inequalities and things in society is with the gospel and so whenever the gospel is preached whenever god's word is poured into people's lives, it changes the men fundamentally from the inside outward, and the rest of it corrects itself, okay? And so we need to continue to be gospel-centered. We need to continue to be focused on the things of God, and if we do that, that will fix those other things. That that will do a lot better job of fixing it than all of our other methods, Right. right? And so it was so effective in Ephesian society that all the craftsmen were afraid that they were going to go bankrupt, that they were going to lose their businesses. And so in the passage that we read, a silversmith by the name of Demetrius stood up and he he called all of the men together. This was like a, a union meeting, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> the, the Silver Workers Guild or something. Anyway, he brought them all together and he says, we're going to have to do something about these Christians. We're going to have to do something about Paul because we're seeing our sales go down. We're seeing people no longer buying our idols. We're seeing people no longer engaging in our religion, and we don't want to see our way of life, our business, our uh, culture, we don't want to see that diminish. We want to see it preserved. Okay, And so he said, these guys are a threat to us. And so this says that there was uh, no small stir that happened. What that means is there was a riot. Everyone was meeting on the town square. Everybody was coming together, and they were, uh, if they had bullhorns, they would have had them out, right? Of course, they didn't have them back then. And so they're coming out, and they're calling the people together and saying, we have to stand against this. This is ruining our way of life. We've got to overcome the Christians and their effect that they're having on our society and on our city. And so as this is going about, uh, they are looking for Paul. They don't find him. They find a couple of the men that are traveling with him. They bring him to the arena, and most likely what they were intending to do is to either beat them to death or tear them to shreds. Yeah. And Paul was planning on going down, and everybody was preventing Paul from taking part in this because he was the main one they were looking for. They said, Paul, if you go down there, they are going to kill you. 
And so the believers said, you were too valuable to us. You were too important to us for you to go down there. And so you just stay away. You don't need to get beat again. You've been beat up enough times, right? Right. And so they prevent Paul from going down to the arena. And there's this big ruckus that's occurring. And it says in verse 33, they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. Now this Alexander, I don't believe that he is a believer. He is one that is going to be fighting against the, the Christians, okay? We find that Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Alexander the coppersmith did us much evil. I believe this is probably the same Alexander. And so this man is to come out, but whenever the people hear that he is a Jew, they realize that he is not one that worships their goddess Diana. And so for two hours' time, I believe it says, yeah, verse 34, two hours' time, they just shouted him down. They would not listen. They would not reason. They would not even entertain any thought. They said, great is uh, the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. And they just shouted it over and over and over and over and over and over for two hours' time. Wouldn't even listen. If they would have listened to this guy, he probably would have been rallying them against Paul as well because the Jews were seeing their, their foothold decrease as well. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so all of this fuss, uh, all of the city in an uproar, everyone upset about this, if we get to the root cause of it, it is because good is winning out, because evil is losing, and they don't like it. Right. Okay? We can take their, uh, their uh, actions and reactions, and we can compare it to a lot of the things that we see in our society today. Right? Because if we are living as Christians in this world, if we are affecting the, the communities in which we live just by living by godly principles, mm -hmm. we are going to draw the attention of those who don't like Christ and don't like us. Mm -hmm. We are going to be perceived as a threat. Did Paul do anything that was a threat to them? No. Okay. If we go on down to verse number 37, the... The magistrate or the one of the, the city officials finally gets everybody to quiet down. And in verse 37, he says, For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. He says, These men have done nothing against you. They're not even blaspheming your goddess. They are living according to their conscience, according to the dictates of their faith, and they have not attacked you, and the things that they are doing is not against you. And so he tells them, you have created all of this fuss for no reason, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is instructive for us as Christians today, that there was this huge change that was taking place in society. It was taking place through the preaching of the word, through the discipleship, of the believers through the growth of the church and the people, uh, I guess a revival, if you would, throughout the society there, God was doing a work and they weren't going out in a hostile manner. They weren't going out and fighting against the loss. They weren't going out combative. They weren't going out and trying to topple society. All they were simply doing was bringing the message of salvation and of God's grace to people who needed it. Okay? So the reason that's instructive for us today 
is just as Paul and the believers there were not uh, robbers of churches, they weren't blasphemers of their religion, of their goddess, we shouldn't be as well. We have this militant mindset a lot of times as if it is our duty and our right to go out and set everyone else straight. As if it is our right to be on the attack and on the offensive. And some people uh, try to be try to make Christianity as offensive as possible. Right? They are giving uh, ammunition to the enemies as they are going about the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we handle ourselves. We are giving ammunition to the enemies and validating some of their accusations against us, that we are hateful, that we are bigoted, that we are all these different things because of the way that Christians are acting or so-called Christians are acting. <clears throat> Paul was in one of the most wicked cities there was. He was in a place where lawlessness reigned, and yet he was simply living for Christ. He was simply getting the gospel out. He was simply modeling Christ before them. He was discipling the believers and that was growing, okay? It was taking over their society, and I believe that is a much more effective way for us to be salt and light in this world. Uh, it's been said that we are supposed to be salt, not salty, <laughs> yeah. right? That's like a common phrase in society today, be salty. That's whenever you are uh, abrasive and hateful, right? And that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And so as we look at this, uh, uh, this riot here, we can see the society that we're against in this. They don't want to listen to the things that we have to say, right? They are shouting them down. They are, have you ever seen like on the news, whenever there is a group that's protesting and if someone tries to talk to them rather than actually listening and conversing and engaging in conversation, that they just shout them down and keep repeating the same things over and over again? Men don't change, do they? They do the same things now as what they did back then. And so they never really tried to engage with them. They never tried to say, okay, we've got to make our voice heard. We've got to be louder because these people were never going to listen to begin with. Our walk has to speak before our words do. And so anyway... Uh, these people were shouting them down. They refused to listen. They were upset because uh, their, their sin and their way of life was threatened. What is society's main argument against Christianity today? What's some of their main arguments? So I'll get you guys involved. Well, we have. We're not doing a very good job of it. That's that, that the main accusation. Mm -hmm. In the recent, many people would not want to listen to the word of God preached to them because mm -hmm. even when you are trying to convert somebody to the will of the Lord, mm -hmm. you will be reluctant because if you don't lose his worldly friends, mm -hmm. you will lose all the mundane things of the world. Mm -hmm. You will lose everything that gives money in a negative way. Right. That is always the argument. So they see it as a threat in that yes, way. Threat. So so it goes back to what we're seeing here that it is a threat to their sin, right? Mm -hmm. We are accused of being 
Okay. Which is always a funny accusation because the people who throw out that we are being closed-minded are being closed-minded as well. Right. <laughs> okay. yeah. Intolerant, brainwashed. And this is funny because the people who throw out these accusations, as they are accusing us, they are guilty of the exact same thing. And so they say, you're intolerant, but they don't tolerate us. You're closed-minded, but they're closed-minded against what we believe as well. Right? And so these are the arguments, these are the things that they're loving against us, but they are guilty of the same exact things. Right? They love to say it's just a bunch of do-goodos. Okay. It's all about the doing. Yeah. Well, and we should be we should be do gooders. But you can't just be doing good mm-hmm. the gospel. Right. Right. And so whenever we are looking at the the friction between the world and Christianity and the accusations that are levied against Christianity today, we see many of the same things here. And the world is saying we can't have Christians because their their beliefs do not align with our beliefs. And they consider that to be um, an attack against them or a, uh, the word is eluding me at the moment. But anyway, they consider that the fact that our worldviews, our mindsets, our beliefs, because they're not the same as theirs, that it is somehow uh, a danger to their belief system. Right? And so we are going out and we are preaching the gospel. We're telling, and they have the choice whether or not they believe it. We're not forcing it on anyone. We're not telling them that they can't do their sins. Right? But we are telling them about the danger and the results of their sins. And how to escape the, the cost of their sins. But they don't want to hear those things. And so whenever the world is looking at Christianity today... They say, as long as Christians are around, we're afraid that somehow it is going to, uh, it is going to take away from our beliefs. Somehow Christianity is going to limit us or it's going to adversely affect us. And so we want Christianity to be gone because we like the way that we're going. We like our idol worship. We like our paganism, we like our sin, we like our wickedness, and as long as they are here, they are dangerous to our way of life, right? And that's the way that it should be. Y'all realize that? That's the way that it should be, because the darkness hates the light. We'll see that later on. And so as we are living, it's not that we are living in a way to be offensive to them, We are not living in a way that is uh, intentionally offensive, but they are going to be offended by things that are righteous, things that are holy, things that are good. Okay? And so as we come to the end of this chapter, uh, we find that this riot is ended because essentially the, the... the governing officials of the town say you all have created this big uh, 
this big commotion. You have created this chaos here, and it's going to draw the attention of the Romans. You realize Ephesus is not in Rome, it's not in Greece, it's over within the region of Asia and the kind of the, the Near East. Okay? And so they said this is going to get the Roman officials in here. It's going to cause them to bring in their soldiers. If we're not careful, they are going to mess up our way of life. They're going to come in and restore order. And so to keep the Romans out of this, we need to keep everything quiet. And so everybody disperses. Everybody goes home. And the assembly is dismissed in verse number 41. And so that's the end of it. The the metal workers, the silversmiths, they don't get any satisfaction. The Christians are not reprimanded, not punished, not uh, imprisoned, nothing like that. And everything just kind of breaks up. And so there's still that hostility that's brewing under the surface. But it seems as if God has worked it out to where uh, the enemies didn't get anywhere, so they're going to be less likely to do it again. Mm -hmm. Right? And so the church is able to continue living in a godly manner in the society, sharing the gospel, uh, and growing and overcoming the, the wickedness that is there and having an effect on that place. And so that's what they're doing. And Paul's going to go ahead. He's going to leave uh, as we get into chapter 20. We're not going to do that today. But as we get into chapter 20, uh, after all this riot was over, Paul says, okay, it's my time to bow out. I'm the main uh, instigator of this. I'm the one that is being blamed for this. I'm the one that's the focus of this. So it's my tr- my time to leave. I'm going to go ahead and go back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to leave the church here to grow, right? And so as he's the kind of the, the figurehead, if you will, of the Christians there, he says, if I'm no longer here, then it's going to give you a little bit more peace, so I'm just going to bow out. And so he leaves. And something interesting for me, just to bring out a final point here, is the care that the believers have one for another. Throughout all this ruckus and all this riot, they care about Paul, they care about his welfare, and they're saying, Paul, don't go down there, you'll get killed. And then in turn, Paul is saying, I am going to continue to be a, I'm going to continue to provoke these people if I stick around. So for the good of the believers, I'm going to bow out. And he goes away. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, okay, I'm going to be the spearheading this charge. I'm going to be instigating. I'm going to be attacking. We're going to be storming these people. He says, this isn't the way the church is meant to function. We're not here to, we're not here to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? not here to be caustic. We're not here to cause chaos. We're here to live for Christ. And that's what they do. And so Paul bows out. He goes onward here and goes back to Jerusalem and leaves the church at Ephesus to continue growing, continue transforming society, uh, to continue turning the world upside down with the gospel. So with that being said, does anyone have any, any comments or anything to add today to the things that we've looked at? Yes, I speaking about the accusation of uh, against Christians. Mm-hmm. The Bible spoke widely about that, that Satan is the accuser of brethren. Mm-hmm. And when you relate that to what actually happened in Jesus, uh, where an opera was stirred by the goldsmiths and the silversmiths, 
-hmm. against Paul. Mm -hmm. And your city was in a fiasco. And the mayor of the city was able to calm the situation and dressing the brethren. That's exactly the way it is. And that's how it should be. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, Satan came of God and accused Job you know, in the face of God. And he sought permission to go and destroy Job. God said, Go ahead. It's, at the end of the day, Job was afflicted. I would say the end of Job was far better mm -hmm. than the beginning. Mm -hmm. So there is there is a better end than the beginning. Mm -hmm. I somewhat love the James the way he puts it in verse 20 of the chapter we study now. <clears throat> so mightily good the word of God and prevailed. Mm -hmm. It prevailed. Mm -hmm. Is the word of God prevailing today in our own contemporary society? I would say no. Mm -hmm. Like I already mentioned it. It's not because the world has, you know, taken charge of the church. Mm -hmm. The world is already in the church. Mm -hmm. The church is no longer, you know, in control of the world. The world is in control of the church. Mm -hmm. Go to church today and school that the church has become much more worldly mm -hmm. than it ought to be. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the life of Apostle Paul that we are studying today, right from chapter 1 up to the last chapter of, you know, Acts. Mm -hmm. And right from when Apostle Paul came into under the scene, the gospel, you know, affected society so much. Mm -hmm. And we have to strive, strive to ensure that our lifestyle, mm -hmm. even as Satan accused us, we have to prove him wrong by our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Not by attacking, you know, fire, fire for fire. Mm -hmm. Our lifestyle alone is enough to prove Satan wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what I want yeah. to take. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to make sure that when the accusations come against us, that there's no, uh, they're, they're invalid, right? And I think that's one of the problems is that, uh, Satan doesn't have to bring false accusations against most Christians anymore. Most of the time he can, he can say the truth and it's bad enough, right? But with what he was saying, um, uh, it is important that there is a difference between Christianity, between the church, and between the world, right? That was the huge rub in Ephesus is how great of a difference there was between the Christians and the run-of-the-mill Ephesians. And that's why I said there earlier that there should be uh, offense in the world, not because we're trying to be offensive, but because Christianity is offensive to the lost and to the wicked, right? And if we are separate, if we are living according to God's word, if we are disciples of Christ, there should be something that is clearly seen to be different, right? And just men are prejudiced. Men don't like things that are different. And the lost aren't going to like Christians whenever they are living their lives in a different way. And that's one of the reasons why the Word of God is not prevailing today. That's one reason we're not seeing Christianity growing and being victorious and seeing things happen is because, for the most part, there's not much difference between the, the church and the world, right? There's no separation. There's no difference. And the world can look on the church and say, yeah, 
looks like everything that I see out here. There's the idea that in order for us to be effective as Christians, in order to be a witness, that we have to be like the ones we're trying to reach. And unfortunately, that is a lie that many Christians have bought into. But here's the problem with that. If we are just like them, if there is no difference between us and the lost, what do we have to offer them? If they look at us and say, they're just as wicked and as messed up and as worldly as what I am, so where is the power in their religion? What has their God done for them? What do they have to offer me whenever we're not showing God's deliverance and his power in our lives? We have to have something that they don't. We have to have God evident in our lives. And whenever we do that, then they're going to see it. And it's going to cause them to either desire what we have or to hate what we excuse me, or to hate what we have. But as Christians, we have to be different. Anything else? Yeah. Okay. You, you touch on Christian being being a threat to the world. And uh, I guess it would be like comment rather than question. Okay. In, in verse 19, it shows how, how does believer the time change their mind mm -hmm. and decide not being told because I don't read saying Paul says go and bend everything you mm -hmm. have. Consciously they just chose mm -hmm. to go and and change their way of living. Yeah. And then further down it shows there was a loss as well to the world at that time, mm -hmm. as today we can put in the context of being a, a business people, mm -hmm. they start losing their craftsmen. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was a threat of Christianity at the time, mm -hmm. because the world starts seeing, okay, we are losing money here, we are losing our livelihood, we are losing our businesses. Mm -hmm. What these people have to offer mm -hmm. in order just Believers change their mind, mm -hmm. and I, I, I guess that's that's how it's supposed to be Christian today. We're supposed to have the way that someone different sees something in us that he will see being threat, mm -hmm. not being threat of like I don't like that person because it's that way, but at least having something to stand on that it will give someone something to click on. But now again, I've got a question that comes out. So what is that Christianity today, besides being in, 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 in the building, mm -hmm. that we really need to show, or we really need to do that, it will be threat to the world? Okay, just a, a very real-world example, okay, yeah. is as you go to work each day, mm -hmm. Being a Christian is going to make you a different kind of employee, okay? And so as you're at work, you're going to be honest in your dealings. You're going to refuse to cheat your boss. You're going to refuse to, uh, to uh, fudge your numbers, okay? And it might be something that is normal practice at that business, that everyone else is doing these things, but you're taking a stand and saying, I'm going to be just in my dealings. I'm going to walk honestly. It's going to be, okay, whenever you're in the break room and everyone is telling 
filthy jokes. You want to choose not to laugh at that or to stay in the presence of it. It's whenever you are uh, uh, at the end of the day, everyone's going out uh, drinking and partying and you're saying, I want to go home. I want to spend time with my family or I want to go to church. There's going to be a marked difference in your life and they're going to look at you and they're going to despise you for that. They're going to say, oh, Peter, he's Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, right? They're going to look at Peter and say, he's making us look bad. He's pointing out our dishonesty. He thinks he's better than us. Whenever none of those accusations are true, you're just living according to the dictates of God's word in your conscience, right? But it's going to put you in the crosshairs, and it's going to bring those accusations because you are... Mr. Goody Goody, you are the one that refuses to compromise. You're the one that refuses to lie. You're the one that refuses to be dishonest. You're the one that refuses to engage in vice and all these things. And it's going to mark you. It's going to make you different. And quickly in your in your place of work, uh, it's going to cause people to dislike you if you live by godly principles. I know, just, I don't think you'll mind me saying this, I know Fergus has dealt with this with work with them uh, in different jobs that he's had in the past, wanting him to do things that are dishonest, and he took a stand and said, no, I'm not going to do that. It didn't go so well, right? <laughs> and even with looking for work and things now, you're struggling with that because of those things. There, There's this expectation for you to live by society standards, for you to do things that are acceptable and normal operating, but that violate Scripture. And whenever you take that stand, when you refuse to do that, it's going to mark you. You're going to be different, right? And you're going to be disliked for it. But there's also going to be people that's going to respect you for it. And they're going to know where you stand. And they might mock you. They might ridicule you. But they are going to realize there is something about what he believes. There's something that makes him different. There's something special. And it may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It might be next week, next year or whatever, there's going to be an event that happens in those people's lives and they're going to say, I need someone who is different to help me with this. Yeah. And it's going to give you an opportunity to speak into their lives. This will be an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Right. They're going to say, Peter is different. Peter operates by different principles. He operates by uh, you know these different things and I'm going to go to him about this issue because they're going to respect you for it. Maybe not to your face. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think the word threats may look ambiguous. But the word threats, in the way it's used, doesn't mean just <laughs> and you just fret and you spawn up. Mm-hmm. It's your way of life. Does it stir up somebody's conscience as to want to serve your God? Does, do you make a difference? Most times they ask me where I work. And you smoke a little, you drink a little, it looks like you are religious. I'm not religious, I'm a Christian. You know, it's not just being religious, it's just being mm-hmm. a child of God. Mm-hmm. You see, your life is like a book, like I said the other day. People read it, mm-hmm. you may not know, but they study you as a book. Yeah. Does it, you know, send a signal to them? Does it make people want to see what is actually you know, unique about your life that is making you behave the way you behave. That is the word threat. That's the way, I, I think, Pastor mm-hmm. says, oh, just to add mm-hmm. a little to what you're just mm-hmm. to I think the problem is there is not really any limit to this. You know, we can be more and more and more Christian. 
Because it's easy actually to burn the books or, or to destroy the idols. It's, it's simple. Th those are not basic necessities. Those mm -hmm. are just the extra things you have in your home. But then again, nowadays there's there's lots of influence from you know the the anti-Christian people. They they own huge companies. They they sell products and all that. So of course you can affect a lot by simply boycotting. Mm -hmm. But then again, there is more and more that, that we can boycott. Some of those things are hard to boycott. Like for myself, I know there are things I should boycott, but it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. Like I should boycott Windows, Microsoft, yeah. Hard. <laughs> <laughs> I should boycott MasterCard because those are also mm -hmm. anti-Christian people. It's also hard to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially because my bank doesn't even offer other options. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's where we can go to extremes with it and say, okay, well, I'm not going to deal with anyone that's not Christian. Well, good luck build a monastery somewhere and you know have your own little secret society. You can't do that. But it's things that are directly impactful on us that are wicked in our lives that we have to get rid of personally, not necessarily just something that's associated at a distance right. to someone with you know. I think it boils down to whether you greed dog is or not. Mm -hmm. Simple. Yeah. You know, we can try and say, oh, I have to live up to this standard, I have to mm -hmm. try and show that I am this good guy mm -hmm. and try and live like that. Mm -hmm. But unless the Holy Spirit convicts you every day and you submit, yeah. and you can you can grieve the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. at any time. But I think it's easier sometimes said than done yeah. to walk like a Christian. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you look in the book of Revelation, where God says he walks in the midst of us mm -hmm. in the churches. Yeah. Right? So he knows what's going on mm -hmm. in each person in this place today. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, something that came to mind as you were saying that is Paul, after he is in prison, is testifying, I believe, before the religious leaders. I might not have this completely right. But he says that he has done everything to live before God with a pure conscience. Okay? And that's why they smite him on the face. Right? But this is where we should be as Christians. We're familiar with God's word. We are discipled in his word. We know what his word says. And these are principles. This isn't that we're uh, legalistic and law-keeping and trying to keep all these rules. It's, okay, these are the, the principles of God's word, of being honest, of being... Uh, gentle and being generous and these different things that we institute in our lives and we strive to live before God with a clear conscience. And that's what you're talking about, not grieving the Spirit. And so in our lives, it's not, okay, I've got to do all of these things and make it about rule keeping. It's, okay, what, what pleases God? Yeah. What's going to have an impact on those around me? And so you're living in such a manner that you are a, a good representative of God to the world which we're living in. And that's going to make a difference, but it's also going to draw uh, criticism as well. Mm -hmm. Right? And I will say this as well, and I know we're going over time, but um, I think it's extra hard to do it where we're at now. Yes. Because much of, many Christians are complacent. Mm -hmm. Most of society is against <laughs> God. And we end up being like Elijah. We feel like we're the only ones. Mm -hmm. Right? We feel like we're outnumbered. You're the one at work, and you're the only Christian living for God at work, right? Isn't that the way it seems? You know, those who are going to school or whatever, it seems like you're the only one. And different places that we go, it's like all society has went this way, and we're the only ones. 
And so it makes it difficult to live for God whenever you're grossly outnumbered. And that's where it is that much more important that we continue to do it, that we stay close to God, that we have a walk with God, we stay in his word, and that we have fellow believers that's going to encourage us along and going to help us along, right? Whenever Elijah said, I'm the only one, God says, you're not the only one. There's more over here. And by the way, go over and team up with Elisha. He's going to be your your sidekick now, so you're not going to be alone, right? We need other people to help encourage us and help us to know that we aren't alone in the cause of Christ. Anything else? Because yes, our physical immediate surroundings yes, yes. become mostly non-Christians. Yeah, like mm-hmm. my housemates are mostly non- non-Christian. Then mm-hmm. same goes with the world, mostly non-Christian. But then again, nowadays we have all this te- technology for communication. Yes. We can communicate to all the world, all the Christians around the world. Mm-hmm. And even here, I'm here because I found it through the internet, this place, mm-hmm. and that's how I'm here, and I found all, all the Christians. Yeah. Before, in some period in the past, there was no such ability to just mm-hmm. find the other Christians just like that, so easily. Yeah. So, it's so, yeah, so, yeah, that is a blessing. Yeah. That we can, we can see that there are others out there. But uh, even, okay, I hate to bring this one up. But uh, even like whenever, during COVID, whenever everyone was on lockdown and everything, and we started doing like an online church, we're glad we were able to do that, but still not the same, right? You might be able to go online and hear preaching. You might be able to see churches that are meeting in different countries and things like that. But whenever you're in Ireland and there's very few people who believe and practice what we do, and it seems like everyone around you is constantly uh, going against the things that the Word of God says, it makes it hard on a practical, everyday level. And yes, we need to supplement. We need to have these other things and praise the Lord for them. But we need to take knowledge and we need to take knowledge of the situations around us so that we will take action. Uh, even David, it talks about he encouraged himself in the Lord. Sometimes we have to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Pastor, let me just keep in this. I mean, talking about the, the difficulty of putting aside these things we are mentioning, mm-hmm. the the difficulty of giving up many of the or habits we are used to, you know, so that we can embrace God. It's difficult, fine. Mm-hmm. But the only key to overcoming it is in John chapter 3. Mm-hmm. You know, how did how did this happen? In John 3, 3, mm-hmm. you know, the life of Nicodemus changed because he, he approached Jesus mm-hmm. in the middle of the night and he sought a new life. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as we are in the flesh, we can make it. Mm-hmm. So there's time, yes, this was, was a very great time to dwell on the flesh and spirit. Because if the flesh and the spirit are coexisting, we'll be in trouble. Mm-hmm. What else says, those who live by the flesh shall die. Mm-hmm. But if you live by the spirit, you shall live. Mm-hmm. That's just my little thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and end there for today.
uh, for the service anyway. So let's go, Lord, in prayer and take a short break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for your word and, Lord, that we were able to to look in it and see the way that you were working through the, the believers in the first century, Lord, and how effective that they were because they were relying on your word and on its power and on the power of a transformed life. Lord, help us, Lord, to allow you to do that needed work in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be a light and a witness in this world you've put us in. And Lord, we just thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for loving us. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name and amen.